welcome to the Utah Women in Leadership podcast. Today we're going to be talking about human trafficking among Utah girls and women. In fact, this is the topic of a research snapshot that we just released from the Utah Women in Leadership Project. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, the Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University, and also the founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. This research snapshot shared the latest information and data around first, human trafficking definitions and contributing factors, second, the direct and indirect costs and consequences of human trafficking and the stats on Utah specifically, and finally, recommendations for Utah on eliminating human trafficking. The lead author on this report was Dr. Lindsay Gazinski, who was an adjunct faculty at the University of Utah and is currently overseas as a visiting scholar at Leiden University. Michaela Caress, a UWLP research associate, Marin Christensen, the UWLP's associate director, and myself were co-authors assisting in this work. Dr. Gazinski was unable to join us for this podcast, but Dr. Annie Isabel Fukushima, also a human trafficking scholar, is joining us today for this episode to discuss the topic. Dr. Fukushima is Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies, Director of the Office of Undergraduate Research, and Associate Professor in the Division of Ethnic Studies with the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah. She is also the author of the award-winning book, Migrant Crossings, Witnessing Human Trafficking in the U.S., published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Dr. Fukushima, thanks for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So first, why are you so interested and passionate about the topic of human trafficking, and particularly as it relates to women? Yeah, um, there are many reasons why I'm interested in the issue of human trafficking. And I think the question becomes, when did it start? How did I become interested in it? You know, when I was, um, when I reflect back on my earlier academics, when I was an undergraduate student um, at University of Hawaii, one of the things that I was really, you know, starting to read more about was the relationship between histories of gender-based violence and migration patterns. And so, There was a lot of things that I was finding both, you know, learning more about my family's history and how we arrived to the U.S. Um, I'm a Korean, I'm Korean, a Mexican or a Krachikana. My family's from Korea. And so, you know, there's a range of things that, you know, uh, brought me into the story of what is human trafficking. And I think that as I started to learn more about it and from a personal localized context of Hawaii, eventually started to make broader connections. Um, And so since then, it really has become a, um, I guess you could say a life commitment, a life commitment to really address uh, gender-based violence, human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual violence um, in all of its complexities and how they intersect with general human rights violations. I love that because I know your voice is, is, you have such a strong voice on the sexual assault, domestic violence area, but human trafficking is part of that. And there's, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, some overlap in some ways with all of those. So thank you so much. I'm I'm glad you're passionate because it's, especially the human trafficking, that's such a narrow piece. And and I would say, maybe, I don't know if you would agree or not, but I would say, I still think, even with the news out there, that there are people in Utah that that don't think there's any issues with human trafficking within our state. 
That's correct. I think that when we look at what people are seeing um, or perceiving, and even advocates that are working on the front line, and they're talking about educational and awareness efforts around human trafficking, there is a common perception that human trafficking doesn't happen here or isn't as bad here in Utah. And I think that one of the things is that part of it is because of the way that we perceive of what is human trafficking is that it's like something that happens over there. And I also think that, you know, with the complexities of human trafficking is that when people start to learn more about what it is and, and how it happens, they start to realize that actually it is really on a spectrum of labor violation yeah. uh, to exploitation and that it really is a slippery slope. And we oftentimes see in our communities, even here in Utah, where people might be experiencing trafficking or they might be experiencing a range of labor violations. And that what we know is that uh, with human trafficking is that it very much you know, as part of this spectrum, you know, when I think about when I started doing more public speaking on human trafficking, I remember I'd regularly be approached by young communities of color, and especially communities that were diasporas or migrant communities. And they would talk about how what I was describing is what their parent, it sounded like what their parents went through, working in farms, working in domestic work, uh, working in a range of industries. And so it's, a, it's quite a complex issue. Um, and Part of it is that people don't realize how complex the legal definition is of what yeah. constitutes and I was, trafficking. And I was just going to ask you, um, how would you define, I mean, you speak often, so how do you define human trafficking? Yeah, well, I can give you the way that when I'm talking with students, how I define it um, and educating it in that context. And in a nutshell, human trafficking is it occurs when force, fraud or coercion occur in industries for labor or sexual economies. And I think that when we think of what is human trafficking, though, and how it happens, is that it also occurs in a range of industries. And it doesn't mean that those industries always are where trafficking is rife. It's just that they're oftentimes where where protections um, are not always happening or rights are not always afforded to people. And so then that might include, um, for example, when we think of agriculture industries, uh, we all need food to eat. And so when we think farm to table, um, there's a range of conditions though that happen where uh, migrant workers are um, precarious or vulnerable because of their legal status. And in some conditions, um, employers take advantage of that legal precarity. Annie, that piece you, you really put under the chunk of labor trafficking, correct? Yeah, you know, and it's all trafficking, I guess, you know, I think it all very much intersects because even in agriculture industries, we see where um, sexual assault is occurring and sexual abuse. um, And so, or harassment uh, and sexual harassment. And so, and I know with the coalition of Immokalee workers, they were really advocating about that intersection and bringing it together. And so, you know, yes, while there is labor trafficking, we can't always, you know, always separate out when labor exploitation or sexual exploitation is happening. Sometimes they really do intersect, um, but not always. And that's what makes trafficking so complicated. Yeah. So before I dive into another question, let me provide a few details right from the report. Human trafficking is a global problem that involves the exploitation of people for profit through the means of force, fraud, or coercion. And it takes a variety of forms, like we just talked about, including forced labor, debt bondage, domestic servitude, and sexual exploitation. 
While the scale of trafficking in persons is difficult to determine, estimates suggest, I think this is interesting, that there are over 40 million victims worldwide, and that was an estimate just for 2016. So while human trafficking occurs across sexes and gender identities, approximately 20% of victims detected globally are girls and about 50% are adult women. So I just wanted to set the stage there. I'll stop there. And before we head into Utah specifically, I'd love to have you discuss the problem of human trafficking more broadly in the United States and globally. I know your work is not you really do a lot for Utah, Annie, which I appreciate, but you do so much for the U.S. and globally as well. So would love to have you talk about that. Yeah, human trafficking is a human rights violation, and there are a range of national networks that are working on these issues. One organization that I'm a member of um, is the Freedom Network USA, where they work with experts across the country. And so the way that they're working with human trafficking is in a range of ways, and it's quite robust. You know, the response is robust from people working with, as we talked about in a range of, you know, um, agriculture or different labor economies. And we also have folks that are based out of New York that are working with people who are um, surviving in sexual economies and working with them uh, from a human rights perspective. You know, the whole um, gamut in the United States of what is human trafficking, how it's occurring is quite wide, and it really is context specific. And so when I think about what's happening in California, there are very different state laws that provide protections as well as you know, resources and different economies that shape why human trafficking is happening in California and the way that it's happening. You know, right now they've been really um, trying to make more visible the issue of child labor trafficking because mm-hmm. we know that oftentimes children also work in laboring industries. Um, and so they want to provide more protections there. But it looks so different than when we look at, um, you know, in Florida or if we compare it to New Orleans um, and what's going on there. And so I've been very, you know, impressed with the wide range of response. We know it's also very different for um, tribal communities and what they're facing since we cannot delink what they are doing in the response in Native communities uh, from a history of decolonial work. Um, And so, yeah, it's, and so when I think of human trafficking across the North American context to its different, um, you know, territories is that I think that it's quite complicated and that it really is context specific. And so even um, growing up in Hawaii, uh, you know, the industry of human trafficking was very much tied to tourism as well as to uh, military economies. And so it just really depends. And so I love um, thinking about that complexity as it moves across in different parts of the U.S. and how they're tied to other countries and immigration patterns. And um, And some countries, as we know, I mean, I met with a group a number of years ago from Indonesia and they came to my house, actually, and we started talking about women's issues and so forth. And through translators, but oh my gosh, I mean, they gave me statistics in Indonesia and it's, it's remarkable in a negative way. How many, especially girls and young women are trafficked there? I wanted to mention in our, in our snapshot, we met, you've mentioned many of these, but it mentions some of the industries. So domestic work, agriculture, you've mentioned mining, I thought that was interesting, especially for labor, probably Mm -hmm. fishing, factory work, traveling sales crews, um, restaurants, construction, massage businesses, residency, 
residences, motels, and other venues. So that, yeah. that, that there, you know, some kind of human trafficking occurs in, in those and probably others too, I would think. Oh, yeah. You know, I think trafficking occurs. It, it is not about the job itself. It is about the conditions. And that's something that's really important is that when a person takes advantage of another, another person's labor or body through force, fraud or coercion to profit, right, as your earlier definition highlights, um, that's where we're seeing um, trafficking occur. And it, it occurs in a range of industries. And even, you know, I think that we also have this mis consumption that it only happens in low-wage industries. In Colorado, they worked on a case, there was a civil case that I was called to be an expert witness on. And one of the things about that case that was so um, important is that it was about a young person who was brought in on a temporary um, student visa, then was employed by their, you know, to work in a lab and uh, were then, uh, because of their legal precarity, um, were being forced to work in um, inhumane conditions. Wow. Um, and so I think that we oftentimes think of it as, you know, a particular kind of industry. We also oftentimes think of the people who are trafficked. Um, there are stereotypes about who they are, too. But I've seen highly educated people experience trafficking. And it is not about their education that makes them trafficked. Again, it is about the um, person who is willing to exploit that person. It's power. Um, Isn't yeah. it a power relation of some kind? For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a power dynamic between a trafficker or abuser and the trafficked or um, the survivor, right? And so, yeah. Thank you so much. Now I want to shift to Utah and I'm going to read a little paragraph here because I, th I think this is so surprising uh, in some ways and will be for some of our listeners. Despite public perceptions that human trafficking is only an international problem, it occurs in the United States and even within rural and urban areas in Utah. For example, in February of 2021, six people were arrested for human trafficking and prostitution in massage parlors after police intervention in Utah County. In 2020, the National Human Trafficking Hotline received 182 contacts, about 64 reported human trafficking cases in Utah. In 2019, 157 victims and 39 traffickers were identified and one more year. And in 2018, the Utah Attorney General's Office conducted 49 human trafficking investigations and reportedly prosecuted eight cases that served uh, 44 victims. Importantly, however, these figures are likely underestimates of the prevalence of human trafficking in the state. And Annie, I don't know if you say I have no memory of this, but it seems like even in the last week or so, I saw something hit the news on human trafficking in the state of Utah. So this is something that often we don't think about, but it is a problem in the state of Utah. Would love sure. to, to have you share your thoughts. Yeah, the, you know, the Utah Trafficking in Persons Task Force that works with local organizations um, like Asian Association of Utah, as well as a range of organizations. I mean, the network is quite broad, both government and non-government. And I think that they're working to respond to human trafficking in all of its manifestations. Um, I know that a couple of times I've been asked to be an expert witness in the courts, and those cases were domestic, you know, U.S. citizens. So when we say domestic, we mean U.S. citizens. It's happening to people that have legal status or are citizens. And so we know that it is happening here. 
in Utah. I think that as we um, start to see the cost of living go up, thinking about job scarcity or job insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, all of those things create the conditions where there are potential of vulnerabilities to happen. And so when people do not have their needs met, then, um, then that means that there are opportunities for others to take advantage of it. And so, yes, it's happening in Utah, both to people who are U.S. citizens, as well as to people who are international from other contexts are brought in. We also know that Utah is connected to other states, as any state is, by major highways, um, by major um, airports. And so then, you know, and so those become other also opportunities of exploitation and movement. And so, you know, even when I was working in California, we would see cases. Um, and so this is back in the day, and I won't say when, um, but way back when. And so when I was working as an advocate, I would see cases of people being trafficked across from California to Las Vegas to Utah up to Washington State back down to California and so we were all very much connected and so while we have state response you know um, I think it is so important that we also have a federal response because we know that it crosses state lines. Thank you so much I you know from what you've talked about and what we wrote in this snapshot, human trafficking is a money-making industry. And in fact, I remember in the report, it says forced labor is thought to generate over $150 billion in annual profits globally. So that money-making piece, isn't that the main driver or of, of human trafficking? It is an important driver for sure. I think that one of the things that and it's a, it now is kind of like one of those things, I don't know, you know, it just gets repeated time and time again, where people will say it is a lot easier to sell a person over and over again versus an object. I think that when we think about this kind of human condition in the U.S. and how it's happening here, there's definitely profits to be made, but there's also, I think, in certain communities, they are surviving. And so they're surviving off of exploiting their own family members, their own community members, um, and even in conditions where it was, you know, for example, where domestic violence and human trafficking intersect. So a person who is being trafficked by their lover into um, sexual economies and hotels is that we would see that, you know, they genuinely love. They love the person that is abusing them. And it is like domestic violence, you know, the cycles of violence, the only difference that separates them from other domestic violence survivors is that there is an economy attached to their abuse. So it's definitely, I think, one of those things where there are um, financial dynamics tied to it. I think it's also very much, we cannot delink it uh, from immigration patterns and our immigration laws. I'm very appreciative that Utah is wel- welcoming to immigrants. That's so important. And I think that we also um, have to remember in addition to that is, you know, equity. And I think this is something that your work does, um, Susan, where you're really thinking about gender inequities and how we address that and how we support and create thriving communities as well as, you know, and so when we think about gender, we can't also not think about race. Um, And so it's like, those are the conditions and that make uh, trafficking happen and make it possible. Um, But definitely for some, it's definitely a financial, it's, it's driven by money for sure. Yeah. You know, I just had a big aha with something you said. I hadn't thought about this, but the situation you mentioned about the lover trafficking, so that you mentioned it's domestic violence. 
it's also human trafficking and yeah. it's sexual assault. Yes, it's all of oh it. Oh my gosh, I just got it's that. That's it. like all three together in one situation, that one. And so that probably, wow. And and often we think of someone being kidnapped, right? Right. When mm-hmm. you, you mentioned family members too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that we know about a lot of trafficking networks is that people are recruited or exploited by people they know. And so there is a perception that it is these companies doing advertisements or something along those lines. And that does happen for sure. Um, So I've worked on cases like the giant labor solution case or other kinds of big hotel cases where it's like large groups. Yeah. Those require massive recruitment. And so, yeah, they do rely on some kind of advertising and and companies to recruit people. But in so many cases, um, like domestic uh, servitude or in trafficking in the sexual economies, these are people that are actually connecting on a peer base, family members, uh, whether it is a parent, a cousin, uh, a person in the family or some other kind of closely Mm. connected person. When I worked on a case in Colorado as another different case, not the one that I was referring to earlier as an expert witness, in that particular case, it was actually family members. You know, they were literally being trafficked to work in agriculture and in the storefront by their own family members. And so it is uh, very complicated in that sense where human trafficking and how it's tied to domestic violence, you know, where things happen in the home is it's so clear to me, but I think that the movements um, have worked to make sense of these issues because there's, you know, they, they, there's so many needs in siloed ways. And I think what we're seeing, though, happen in the state of Utah, which is exciting with the partnerships with UDVC, UCASA, Restoring Ancestral Winds, and uh, partnerships with UTIP, is that we're seeing more, I think, collaborative work to respond to these complex forms of human trafficking that are connected to other forms of violence that we call poly-victimization. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to read just a little segment. Trafficked persons may experience monitoring and surveillance, denial of food and water, restricted communication, substandard living condition, threats of harm to their families, and deception about the consequences if they attempt to leave. So I thought that was interesting and would give some clarity to our listeners. A couple other, I wanna make sure we have time, we're getting to the end of our time, but wanted to make sure we had time to to have you just address COVID. I mean, the the situation with COVID, I I know domestic violence uh, really went up, but then I wanna shift after you address that to what can we do? What are some solutions? So any thoughts about COVID? I mean, did it did it shut it down a little at the first or or what are your thoughts? Yeah, COVID-19 definitely impacted trafficked people. And I was doing um, studies on child labor trafficking, uh, which is also tied to other forms of child labor exploitation and child abuse. And what we found is that during COVID-19, when uh, young folks went home and were staying at home, they were more likely to be staying at home with abusers. And that what we also know is that uh, for labor trafficking and trafficking in general, is that opportunities to identify young folks um, and connect them to resources and get them out of abusive conditions, if that was the pathway to supporting them were impacted greatly. 
And so that's what we saw in COVID-19. We also saw housing instability. And so the Freedom Network USA has been working to create greater awareness around how to support housing access for survivors of human trafficking across the states. And so what we know is that when housing insecurity happened is that people were more likely to rely on their abusers or stay in abusive conditions. And that definitely can relate to this topic. Thank you so much. So you have been doing this work for so many years. As you you look specifically at Utah, what are some of the solutions that, that could be, you know, I'm sure public policy, some different things, but what have you seen and what are you working on uh, and partnering with others on how do we change this? How do we make this better? How do we eliminate human mm-hmm. trafficking? As you are aware, Susan, is that I, you know, still working on the report. I um, hope to come out soon, as you know, what is time in COVID? And one of the things that I did um, in partnership with UDVC, UCASA, Restoring Ancestral Winds, and DCFS was a statewide needs assessment. And so one of the things that we learned is that survivors have a range of needs. One of the biggest needs is housing. Yes. Um, and I think that there are other things that came up in where we know that people that are doing this work on the front line are burning out. They um, need more resources need better pay. And so I think some of the, you know, immediate solutions, I would say, is creating greater housing access. The state of Utah is a housing first state, and I would love us to uh, return to that mission and that value around housing as a right and really put it into practice. And the other thing is that if we want to um, create more equity in work, as well as address any kind of concerns around, you know, labor issues is, well, let's get our uh, folks who are on the front line supported get them paid well, get them a resource so that they can uh, do this work in a sustainable way. A lot of the organizations that do this work are heavily under-resourced um, and are working on- I know on, that, Annie. Yes. That, it's so sad. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. It is. And and if we care about families and communities, I think we really should care about the people that work too, to support a range of families and communities, including their own. And so those would be, I think, the two big recommendations of how we can get involved is around policy and practice around that. One of the things is that to the listeners out there is that Uh, One of the first places we can start is educating our communities about what's happening. And so taking what you hear from this podcast, talking about it with your family and friends so that we can spread greater awareness to our own community from our own networks. And so I think that there's something that we all can do to be involved, to raise awareness around these issues is talk about it. Annie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this podcast episode hosted by the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah State University in partnership with Utah Public Radio, USU Extension, and the John M. Huntsman School of Business. Thanks to Nick Pora for his technical support. The Utah Women in Leadership Project's core mission is to strengthen the impact of Utah girls and women. To learn more about our research, resources, and events, please visit us at utwomen.org. Thank you. Thank you.